Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. We've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. Today we're joined by Will Sue, co-founder and managing partner at Mucker Capital, an early stage venture fund and accelerator. Before becoming a VC, Will was a product manager, and as I learned working with him back in 2007, he was one of the best. Will and his partner, Eric Winala, have built one of the most successful firms in LA, investing in the lights of Trunk Club, Surf Air, Service Titan, and Honey. Will, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to start Mucker. Sure. Uh, so thank you first, uh, Minnie and Dave, for having me here. Uh, and yes, uh, I know David for a very, very long time. It's probably let me do the math. 12 years. Yep. Wow. 12 years. Yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, David Waxman used to be my boss at a company called Spotrunner. And, uh, and it's uh, quite amazing that I'm, I'm still kind of working with David in all these different ways kind of 12 years later. Um, yeah. So how did I get here? Uh, background on me. I graduated Stanford in 98 in the middle of the dot-com bubble. Um, uh, as an engineer, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I took my first job uh, working for an investment bank. There was four of us in the bank uh, supporting probably one or two IPOs a month. Um, I quickly realized that maybe, you know, investment banking is not for me. So uh, I left with a few friends from Stanford and a few investment banking buddies to start an internet company. We were building a B2B marketplace and a SaaS platform in the words of today, a SaaS-enabled marketplace that help commercial general contractors bid out their job to subcontractors. Um, and then uh, uh, I, I went to business school for two years. And then after business school, I took a job uh, at the biggest internet company I know in 2005, and that was eBay. In 2006, that's when I moved down to LA. Um, and I moved down here to work for a company called Green Dot. Um, and did that for a little bit. And then uh, got, uh, got recruited by a company called Spotrunner, uh, which uh, David here is, uh, was the founder. Well, I know we're gonna, if, we, if we talk about Spotrunner too much, we won't get enough on Mucker, but I'm super interested when you're looking at, when you're now in the investor seat looking at founders like, how do you decide who to invest in? I mean, like, uh, I agree with you. That's super important. But how do you evaluate the teams that are coming in? Yeah, I think uh, at the stage that uh, you guys are, just like us, um, it's a little bit like falling in love. Aww. Right? Um, you made so, me cry twice now. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, you can say that I really love brunettes who are between five, four and five, seven, <laughs> and that you want them to have gone to certain colleges and have these certain type of jobs. And that's all great. You can check all these boxes as an investor, but in the end, that last 50% is a leap of faith around, um, do you believe in this entrepreneur and trust them to do things that are sometimes hard and sometimes hard and right at the same time? And do you trust our entrepreneurs to do things the way, to view the world in the same, same way that you do? Right. And drive the company forward in a way that is in the same kind of mind frame that you are, which is from us, uh, very quantitatively driven, very, ob uh, very objective and driven not by ego, but, but the feedback coming from the customer and the market. 
right? Mm-hmm. And when we see that from an entrepreneur, um, that give us the confidence that they can be kind of our spokesperson within the company that replicates um, our ethos around how to build a company. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's more technical things that a lot of VCs look at, which is around addressable market, uh, the depth of the problem they're solving, and the competitive um, environment. And all those things are super important. But uh, when it's so early, things change so much. Um, having an alignment both around ethos and, and direction for the company is super important. So uh, so you're talking about uh, the importance of sort of having that feedback and being quantitative and being able to react to that. And I've heard you also talk about uh, founders who have a good iteration velocity. So people who can get that and then change. Where do people fall down on that? Like where have you seen iteration velocity stall? Yeah, so there's probably two places that it stalls. Um, the one place I saw could often be technical. Um, there are often technical founders who want to do things 100% right. And, and certainly that's an important skill to have, but it's a skill you need at different stages. And a lot of the iteration gets hit by the fact that engineering is not iterating enough and build, trying to build a perfect product. The other side of that problem is more on the business and product side, which is um, and I get caught up in this too, right? Um, when we start a company, we typically have some kind of a, a eureka moment where we have a unique insight that is somewhat uh, innate and not necessarily driven by kind of outside uh, data or feedback. And certainly that's a good thing, right? You, you need a moment of inspiration to move forward. Uh, but when the data comes back from the market that is different than your unique insight, a lot of entrepreneurs are too proud um, to look at that data and go, I was wrong. I need to do something else. How do you screen for that up front? Like, how do you figure out some of these things that are, uh, I are cha- easier to see in the moment? Than yeah. Yeah. I challenge the entrepreneurs I meet even before we make an investment around what their assumptions are in the market. And oftentimes I might create a false uh, alternative where I don't even believe in so much myself. And I see how the entrepreneur react uh, to kind of this separate path than the path that they're on, whether they are dogmatic, uh, whether they're passionate, which is a good thing, right? whether they can use data to refute me um, or uh, they, they take it back to, to themselves after the meeting and iterate and either prove or disprove my hypothesis and come back with an answer, right? Those that take a, a kind of non-confrontational approach uh, to my kind of false alternative um, and use data as a way to refute or approve or disapprove the hypothesis. Uh, entrepreneurs, we we really love to 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 invest in. Right? It's not about whether they listen to me or not. It's actually more about whether they're listening to the market or not. Mm. So, so one is how do you screen for it? And the other is then when someone is in your portfolio, how do you then also coach this out of them? Um, how do you help people? For instance, on your first one, engineers want to build things correctly the first time. And David has said that you tend to be a roll up your sleeves, get quite involved with the founders that you're investing in. Uh, how do you achieve that? Part of that is to have a operating rhythm. Um, so... We require our companies to 
um, have a weekly meeting with either me or Eric with a certain amount of feedback cycle between each meetings, right? So we're asking for- You have a weekly meeting with uh, everyone in your portfolio? Um, I'll say weekly meeting with companies that we invested in for the first 12 to 18 months. After that, they typically get to the next stage and they have new investors and they should set up whatever kind of relationship they want with the new investor Mm -hmm. and we kind of take a back seat. But when we invest, typically we are one, if not the largest check, and oftentimes the only check, and we're the only person managing that company. So we try to create a weekly rhythm around how they think about improving their company, whether that is uh, a marketing go-to-market tests, a product iteration, or sales go-to-market iteration, whatever it is. So we try to create kind of a weekly sprint, if you will, not just around the engineering cycle, but the entire business cycle of build the product, take the product to market, understand the feedback, whether that is from pricing, from value proposition, or simply from kind of sales methodology perspective, and then go back and do another iteration on a weekly basis. Wow. How many companies are in that process right now? Uh, any given time, I'm probably helping 10 to 15 companies. Um, and this is the reason you don't see me out much at night. I'm, I'm usually stuck in the office uh, working with my portfolio companies and stuck as in a good way. This is what I like to do. I actually much rather be helping entrepreneurs build companies than networking and, and going to dinners. So sticking with Mucker, because I do think we haven't actually even hit all of the basics of Mucker, which I think are, are useful just to, to, to almost reset. You guys do 15 to 20 investments a year or you tell me? Um, we do probably 15 to 20 investments a year. Yeah. Could, could you explain the difference between because when you started, it was Mucker Labs and it was very much an accelerator. Now you have Mucker Labs and Mucker Capital. Can you explain that? Sure. To be honest, when we first started, uh, we called it a accelerator mainly because we didn't have any money and an accelerator didn't have to invest too much money to get equity that uh, that they deserve. Uh, so when we first started, we had a million and a half. If you act like a C fund with only a million and a half, three investments in, you're gone. <laughs> um, yeah. And in you know 2011, when we started, uh, YC was 25k for 7%, and we're happy to kind of uh, adhere to that standard and allow us to build a 16, 17 company portfolio with just a million dollars and a half. Um, but in exchange for that kind of equity and that little cash, what we have to do is, you know, help entrepreneurs build companies. And that essentially built the foundation of how we think about venture capital investing. Uh, Mucker is a venture fund that looks like an accelerator. We are also an accelerator that looks like a venture fund. What does that mean? It means that um, the dichotomy or the binariness between kind of being an accelerator and being a fund is actually pretty blurred. Um, whether I gave you $150,000 or $1.5 million, um, if you have the same problems around going to market, the business, the company, the pricing, uh, the marketing strategy, the acquisition uh, economics, uh, we roll up our hands when we help you because we're an investor. We want you to be successful. So it doesn't really matter how much we give you and what the valuation is. Um, the main difference between the accelerator and quote unquote the fund um, is that the accelerator we're investing uh, less money into much earlier stage companies that needs a little more help. And then as the company get more traction, the valuation goes up. And when we see that, we're happy to invest more money at a higher valuation to get the same ownership. 
Got it. But you still work just as hard with, with all the companies. We do. And, you know, we don't sit there and go, oh, well, you're not an accelerator company, so I don't need you to be successful. No, like every company matters. We are a seed fund and we got we to gotta work hard. And uh, I was asking David last night, <laughs> so I was asking, what's the difference again between an accelerator and an incubator? But specifically with Mucker, um, you guys aren't batched as I understand it. Yes. So back to the fact that we are an accelerator, like a venture fund. Um, we make 10 investments a year out of the accelerator. So that is by far the lowest volume of any accelerator out there, right? We just invest very slowly. Um, we don't have this uh, three months program with a, you know, with a demo day at the end and you go fundraise and then goodbye, we move on to the next patch. We make an investment. It's like getting married. There's no divorce. We will work with you until you get to the next round however long that takes. We have companies that's been in the accelerator for over two years, for better or for worse. Certainly it's not something I'm super proud of, but I am proud of the fact that we're still working with them, the entrepreneur is persistent, and we're trying to get to market, product market fit and continue to grow the company. And, you know, and I say this with without any bias, you're really, really well loved by the founders that work with you. I get a lot of good feedback when I say, how are they, how's, how's it like, what's it like working with Mucker? People say it's great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, and uh, I think hope, hopefully a lot of that comes from the fact that we align our interests with them 100% and we put in as much time as we need to make them successful. And we're not picking favorites. Um, we're just kind of in the weeds building the company with them. And they really don't see anything else besides my relationship with them or Eric's relationship with them. And so do people, like, do you get, uh, do people apply? Uh, and is that where you get a lot of your inbound? Or is it more like, you know, at 10110, sure, people send us emails. <laughs> uh, everywhere, everywhere. Um, you know, we are, we're not like Y Combinator where we need to have 10,000 applications to pick 600 companies a class. So uh, our deal flow will vary from one quote unquote class to another, even though that's a little bit of a false kind of nomenclature. Um, I'll say about on the, especially on the accelerator side, a third of the company we invest in go through the transom, as in they hit wow. the application well, button and they apply online, or they just send me an email, and we love that. We we done very well investing in entrepreneurs we never met before. A third of the time, it is uh, some sort of referral from one of our entrepreneurs, so entrepreneur to entrepreneur introduction. And then a third time it comes from um, other VCs that see a company that's slightly too early for them, but they really love and they say, hey, Will, like get, get this company to this type of traction and milestone and we're happy to take a look and we're happy to kind of get it there and then send it right back. I'm super curious about this because we, we keep track of source as well and, and our transom inbound is a lot, but our investment rate is very, very low. Like we don't, we haven't figured out how to evaluate those companies because it's hard to, to know what the founders like if you haven't met them before. How do you do that? Um, I think because we have an accelerator, we're structured to be able to take more risks. Um, we're investing lesser capital into an early stage. And then because it's an accelerator, the entrepreneurs have this mindset that they do need to work with us and that uh, we are a partner in this process to get to product market fit. So then we get to get we get to understand and and really evaluate the entrepreneur over the next twelve months, as well as change the way they behave. 
um, over time, if not simply through culturalization of kind of being in the office and working with entrepreneur, other entrepreneurs with kind of the same mindset. And then by the end of that process, um, we're very milestone driven. So once they do hit that milestone, um, they typically are the type of entrepreneur we like to invest in, right? So in a lot of ways, our due diligence is takes place during the accelerator cycle. But, but as you said, it's kind of a marriage with no divorce, even to those who come in early. Mm-hmm. Do you date a little bit before you get married or you just uh, literally go on what they send you? Uh, certainly, we meet the entrepreneurs. We talk to them oftentimes just over the phone. Um, and we like to give them homework, right? Like as I mentioned before, uh, part of our due diligence cycle is giving entrepreneurs homework and see how they react to that homework. And that homework could be Real homework, as in I really want to figure out this works or not, or fake homework, as in I just want to see how you respond to a, a false alternative. And then um, typically that cycles anywhere from kind of two weeks to two months. Uh, we get a good enough feel where we can make an investment, and then we go from there. I thought it was interesting, and something that I heard you say that I was like, oh, we should do, which is your follow-on investment is very much, it's it's very quantitative. Mm-hmm. It is. We have set a milestone when we do, when you join our accelerator. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think our accelerator set the milestone of three months. Here's the date. Oh. And then <laughs> you move on. Uh, we set our milestone in terms of, you know, uh, user engagement numbers, revenue, or cost per acquisition, or payback period for your sales team, whatever it might be. And um, we don't really allow the entrepreneurs to go raise money from other VCs unless they hit that milestone, right? Like if it's not a deal that I will invest in, mm. um, I don't want to tell David to invest in it, mm-hmm. right? Like I got to truly believe it. So and that's why our acceleration period is so variable. It could be three months and it could be 18 months or even longer because until that company really figures out who they are, how, who they want to be, how they should really sell to the customer, what the venue main uh, business model or value proposition might be, um, that is not a quote-unquote deal that any VC should be investing in. So we held our companies get there and then certainly, you know, when we believe it doesn't mean that everybody will believe that's a great company, but when they are fundraising, we certainly believe that's a great company. Yeah. The other interesting thing, again, I've been stalking you. So, um, (laughs) the other interesting thing that I heard you say was that a company, because you're investing so early, if a company has a $200 million exit that, and, and if you think they might be able to have a $200 million exit, that might be a company that you would invest in. Whereas I hear VCs and I'm coming from the Valley, of course, and everyone, it's gotta be, it's unicorn or bust or decacorn or bust, right? It's very few people say, Oh, I'd, I'd entertain that. Yeah. So the first thing is our fund is kind of small, mm. so we don't need a gigantic exit to return money to our investors. So that makes math easier. Um, and then the other thing is I do believe that, uh, addressable market size or TAM is the most kind of a false idol for for the VC industry. Um, Some of our best investments are now, you know, unicorns or above, uh, had issues with addressable market. But turns out addressable market is uh, much easier to solve than actually product market fit. If the company has product market fit, and knows how to grow their business, they can use that cash flow and expand into adjacent markets. And that happens over and over again, right? So when I think about a business, 
what I really care about is can the company get to about $50 million in, in revenue? Can they be highly cash flow profitable at $50 million in revenue? If they can, um, they're going to be able to have a war chest with or without venture capital that allows them to move into adjacent markets. And that's going to be a lot more valuable um, than a big, huge addressable market, but you know, not so great unit economics with kind of broken product market fit. So how do you think about, in that case, how do you think about downstream financing risk? Because uh, as another person who runs a small fund, uh, we can't, we just don't have the capital to carry people from seed stage all the way to making $50 million, yeah. even in a very capital efficient company. So how do, you, how do you get past that if the company still has an apparent small or non-unicorn TAM and you're going out to A rounds? Yeah, uh, three ways. Uh, the first is, um, well, maybe it's really two. Uh, first is uh, we we just we reserve a ton of capital to do following investments into companies where we believe there's great product market fit, but not necessarily a huge TAM. So we, you know, even though we're writing very small checks, we still have a ninety million dollar fund. So we are willing to write a million dollar check by ourselves on a seed round or a Series A to help the company scale. Um, the other thing that we do is when the company have smaller TAM than a typical kind of Bay Area company. Um, we look for companies with very, really efficient um, uh, business models, uh, both from their revenue model and the customer acquisition and how fast they can get to profitability. And a lot of times uh, they are SaaS companies because SaaS companies has amazing margins and very kind of long lifetime value because the lock-in is really strong. Um, so SaaS companies, once they hit about 50,000 in MRR, and if they're lean and they have true product market fit, they typically can start throwing off cash. And every $50,000 they add to their MRR, they can hire one or two new sales guy, and all of a sudden they can grow again, right? So they can have, the payback period is anywhere from three to six months, they can quadruple their revenue every year just by hiring more salespeople through cash flow. It feels a little contrarian to to my sort of Sand Hill Road overhyped. Maybe it's a huge bubble going on, but like it feels like w what I hear is go try to land on an asteroid. You know, don't you know burn. You know, keeping your burn low is a way to have a build a nice small business or something, um, as opposed to dream big, be crazy. This is a, a business of big bets. Do, do you see it as a little contrarian? Yes and no. Um... Certainly, we have investments where we go, wow, this is, TAM is big, and if you just have 0.1% market share, this is going to be a great company, and we'll do that. And we will shop it to every barrier VC who will say the same thing. Um, and we do that, and that's bread and butter of the company, for sure, or the fund, for sure. Uh, but uh, being here in Los Angeles, um, where we are not a primary kind of tech ecosystem, um, it allows us the opportunity to think outside of the box a little bit and invest in different type of companies. Um, and, and, you know, we've been successful in the past doing it and we'll continue to do it because um, the math works, right? We, we don't need the unicorns to make money for our investors and entrepreneurs don't need the unicorns to be able to make enough money to buy a house and send their kids to college, right? So if all everyone's math works, then um, that's, that's keep on doing it. And if there's nobody else who likes doing that, then even better for me, I get to see all the deal flow invest in all the companies that's going to be great that nobody likes. 
Uh, actually, let me ask one more question about Mucker, which is there's you, there's Eric, who we also know. Um, who, who else is on the team here? Yeah, so um, it's a very small team. I like to say that uh, Venture Capital is a mom and pop business. Um, if you think about our revenue number, it's, it's smaller than the average plumber. Right, so this is where we are. There's no reason to get a big head about being a VC. This is truly a small business, and Mucker is a small business. It's two partners and two associates, uh, Kian here in LA and uh, Monique out in uh, in Nashville. What's one thing that you think will be different in ten years from now in the world? Now, lots of things might be, but name one. Wow, something that would be different. Um, I think the how I interact with my primary care phys- physician oh, yeah. will change a ton in the next 10 years. Um, Mucker is not a healthcare fund, and we don't necessarily market towards those type of entrepreneurs. But in the last 6 to 12 months, it's been a ton of entrepreneurs trying to solve the problem of healthcare. And then not your traditional kind of, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, I want to create a new drug. It is really around the process, the systems, uh, the business models around healthcare. And I, even as broken as healthcare is today in America, I'm actually really encouraged. I think this is like 1998. Uh, entrepreneurs realize that there's something brand new um, a pro- brand new problem they can go solve. And tons of people have kind of said, you know what, that's what I want to do. We share that belief for sure. Um, advice that you find yourself giving a lot that may or may not be listened to. Advice you give founders. Um, the go-to-market strategy is more important than the product. Wow. And and that's that's scary coming from someone who has an engineering background and built my entire career building products. But the go-to-market is more important than the product. And what that means, that means that you, the customer is more important than you. It means that your ability to reach the customer will all impact everything you do with the product. And if you think you can just build it and the product's so amazing that someone will come to you, that you know, wait till the next downturn for that to happen. Right now, there's just way too much com- competition, way too much noise. So every great entrepreneur, every great engineer, every great product person really need to think about how to use their expertise, whether that's engineering or product, to solve the problem around go-to-market. How do you measure success? Like, how do you think about what drives you? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think coming from the entrepreneurial background like David here, um, I think about conquering the world, right? How do you create something so amazing that it changes the way people behave and leaves a legacy that is permanent, right? Uh, Ironically, that's not the business I'm in, right? Um, I'm here to support people with that kind of ambition. And being entrepreneurs, uh, uh, having an entrepreneurial background, it's hard to take a step back and realize that's not the goal of a venture fund. Um, so Mucker is not trying to become the next benchmark. Mucker is not trying to have the next billion dollar fund. Mucker is not going to take over the world. Um, what Mucker allows me to do is to live vicariously through entrepreneurs and help them build great businesses and taking satisfaction that uh, we have contributed to the success and the outcome for our investors, for the entrepreneurs, for our co-investors. And we had to be okay with that, right? I think it's, if I wanted to conquer the world, 
David and I should go start a company. And Minnie, by the way, she's also a founder. And Minnie, too, and we should all go start a company. But trying to conquer the world as a VC, that's a little too egotistical. Our business model is a mom and pop business. We can't take only the top 0.001% conquer the world as a VC. So uh, some humbleness around who we are, who our goal is, and who we're just here as a service provider um, is good context for everybody in this business. Hallelujah, brother. Mm. That's great. Well, I think, Will, it's wonderful to get to know you better, and it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. And I think that's a great note to end on, and I understand why all the entrepreneurs enjoy working with Mucker so much. Thank you for having me, and I'm super impressed by the the setup here. (laughs) Thanks for letting us take over the office. Thanks. Uh, If you thought Will Sue was awesome, then please share this podcast with a friend and stay tuned for next week with Mark Mullen from Bonfire Ventures. Bonfire Ventures.